Hello and welcome to the Talk from Fenaban, a podcast where we chat about the most relevant topics for the banking industry in Latin America. I am Barbara Pianese, Latin America editor at The Banker, and I am recording this episode in Guatemala City, where the annual assembly of the Federation of Latin American Banks is being held. In this episode, we will focus on how the current macroeconomic environment is affecting the banking industry, and also we will talk about financial inclusion. My guests are Martin Spicer, Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean at the IFC, Germana Cruz, CEO and Head for Financial Institutions LATAM Standard Chartered, Alejandro Garcia, Regional Group Head for Financial Institutions Latin America at Fitch Ratings, Mauricio Zuluaga, Liquidity Management Director, City Latin America, and David Goldschmidt, Vice President, Head of Cross-Border Real-Time Payments, MasterCard. So, Martin, I just wanted to ask you about, um, you know, how the region is performing after the pandemic. Uh, I don't know if you can just elaborate really on the economy of the region. Yeah, unfortunately, the Latin American and Caribbean region was the most impacted economically by the pandemic, overall losing almost 6%, a little bit more than 6% of, of GDP. Some countries as much as 17%, others just a few percent. So quite a bit of diversity across the region, but overall it was quite impactful and dramatic in, in negative ways. Although since the pandemic has slowed down and then over the last year, many of the economies have reco- recovered quite well. And, and so the, the economies are back on a growth path. But as we look forward, you know, maybe to in 2022, GDP growth will be about 6%. But as we look forward to 2023, GDP growth looks to slow down to about 1.6% across the region. So this is worrying, uh, particularly given um, the, the need for the economy to continue to grow, to support the growing population and address inequality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and so you would say, what are the main issues that the region has to face from an economic point of view? Um, well, the region is the most unequal region globally, um, even more than Africa in pure poverty levels. Uh, it's not the, the worst, but it, many of the countries face uh, high inequality, which is one of the areas that ISC is, is trying to address with our, our lending and advice. Mm-hmm. I asked Alejandro how this challenging macroeconomic situation is affecting the banking sector. It's very interesting times for the Latin American banking systems. Obviously, uh, there are a lot of global headwinds, especially coming from the global shocks. Uh, we are anticipating like a relatively severe uh, economic shock in 2023 with economic slowdown globally. But more importantly, the really uh, the really new developments that are happening for the financial industry in Latin America, like elsewhere in the world. It's this environment of weak growth high inflation and rising and, and, uh, and interest rates that are staying at relatively high levels. So this is like a confluence of factors that are definitely adding a lot of pressure to the overall financial system. It's going to pretty much like dominate the, the operating environment and the outlook for financial institutions in 2023. So uh, I would say that that's perhaps the most important topic that has been addressed here. And I was wondering if there is any particular uh, banking system or country that mm-hmm. is, is facing particular difficulties, maybe perhaps for internal reasons or... 
something like that. I, I think, I mean, broadly speaking, it's a general trend that it's happening elsewhere, but obviously there are like certain spots in which the challenge it's more material. Uh, on the one hand, I can point, for example, in the dollarized economies, especially like Panama, El Salvador, Ecuador, you know, precisely because they have like this sort of imported inflation, imported interest rates. Uh, usually there's like, uh, there's a lack of lender of love resort. There's no central bank like can truly perform the monetary policy duties. So they have to adapt to whatever the international uh, trends are. And this is like very challenging uh, situation for those kind of banking system in which there's a fully dollarized economy because there could be plenty of liquidity, there could be a lot of uh, deposit stability, but still like there's like a pass-through effect that it's uh, like adding pressures on margins, it's um, net interest margin tend to compress. And precisely at a time when we're anticipating some mild deterioration in terms of asset quality, so it's perhaps like not the, uh, the best combination of factors. Other than the dollarized economies, there are also like another relatively major economies in which we have seen like relatively, um, I would say, faster than average growth, like for example in Colombia, when we look at the uh, like the pace of growth of lending in the recent past, it has been relatively strong, actually in the double digit territory. So obviously that also uh, has pushed banks to look for relatively more expensive funding, which has also added pressure in their overall margins and the bottom line as well. And last but not least, I would say, I would point to a country like Chile. Obviously it's still like a very strong country, a very benign operating environment. We do have like the, some of the highest sovereign ratings and bank ratings in this country, but it's also true that in Chile, it's relatively uncommon to face this situation of double digit inflation, very high interest rate. It's a, it being a more mature economy, uh, typically the interest, the interest margins there are tighter and therefore there has been some more material pressure because of this environment. And Martin, another thing that I think is quite relevant uh, from an economic point of view, I was thinking that given that now, of course, uh, central banks are uh, rising interest rates and, of course, Latin America and the Caribbean is still classified in a certain way as an emerging uh, economy, emerging markets, um, are you seeing investors flying from the region? Uh, what is your take on this? Yes, with uh, the impact of first the pandemic and, and now the, the war in Ukraine, uh, disruptive supply chains, um, inflation increasing across the world, um, some economy, some currencies in Latin America devaluing, um, there is some pulling back of investors from the region. Um, the cost of funding in the region is, is going up. We're hearing banks talk about it now. In some of the markets, the investors, uh, companies that are asking for, for loans are still borrowing, even at the higher rates, because they have projects that they, they want to, to proceed at. But th this is a, becoming a, a larger issue in terms of the, the cost of funding. Um, entities like the IFC, um, are counter-cyclical, and we tend to become more present and, and supportive during times like this, mm. when, when a lot of international funding starts to move away. 
This year, there have been a lot of elections in Latin America. And of course, there has been a swing in terms of political, of the political forces prevailing with many left-wing governments. Germana had an interesting perspective about how this was felt by the banking sector. What I keep hearing is that we are used to see those swings between left and right in Latin America. Mm -hmm. So we have some waves where all the countries are on the left side, which I would say is, is the moment we are living now. And then we have another wave for the right side. Uh, and because of that, I didn't feel anybody really concerned with Latin America. Of course, if you go country by country, there are some details, some specific things, depending on how those new presidents will execute the policies and, and the reforms that would take attention and would demand some more uh, analysis. But overall, I didn't feel anybody really concerned on, on the new governments uh, expecting any rupture or any major disruption in general because of that. One of the main topics here at Feliban is interest rates. Let's see how banks are coping with the situation according to Germana and Alejandro. As you mentioned, right, Feliban, a place where we uh, have the opportunity to meet all the banks and, and clients for Latin America. Uh, interest rate is a hot topic and, and everybody, not only LATAM, globally uh, think about and, and how to be protected or manage that. Uh, what we've been discussing with our clients, it's more on the financial markets instruments, depending on what they have in the portfolio, if they had any protection, if they, they demand any hedge or swaps. We, we cover all the countries in Latin America. We have uh, positions uh, that we can offer good products and, and good pricing. But overall, I, I didn't feel any major concerns. Uh, it is, it is um, a topic that is affecting everybody in the globe, not only Latin America. Uh, in fact, people feel that Latin America is better prepared to deal with those situations, including uh, a high interest rate environment and a high inflation environment, which we're not seeing in Europe and in the United States. Uh, and again, we, we at Standard Charter have been many years in Latin America, so we are used to support the clients uh, in, in, in those situations, and we are, and we are here you know, ready to support them. So the, I didn't feel any, any, anything negative or anything more concerning in that topic. I, I think the, uh, one positive thing about the Latin American banking system, you know, it's like the level of financial intermediation is relatively small. So when you look at the overall size of the banking systems in each single jurisdiction, it's much smaller than what it is in, I mean, clearly compared to developed market, but even in other emerging markets as well. So that has some positive implications. Like, for example, the vast majority of funding, it's in the form of core customer deposits. Obviously, there's also like a certain degree of those in which the overall cost of funding is also rising, but it definitely the, the pace of growth in the, in, in, the, in the cost of funds is much lower when you are so heavily reliant on deposits uh, as compared to when you have like a large portion of your funding, like in the form of market-driven funding, senior bonds, uh, securitizations, or so on. So that's obviously that's part of the overall bank's funding profile, but the vast majority Majority, it's composed of uh, core customer deposits. So, one one strategy that the banks have been following it's obviously 
to further enhance the stability and, and uh, of these deposits and also to continue promoting products that are like more low cost as compared to like time deposits or the other sources of wholesale funding. Uh, and more importantly, I think the second alternative or the second strategy that they are following also is to be particularly careful with their overall market-driven funding whether it is in the local market or in the international market, they are being particularly cautious about the current cost that they will need to face because it's not only the interest rate, but especially if you're going to the international market, you know, there are also like uh, FX risks, there's the cost of hedge, uh, there's also like the, the overall uh, much higher credit spread. So it's a confluence of factors that I think banks are looking at very carefully in order to ensure that they keep the overall cost of funds under control. Maurice also went in depth on how higher interest rates are affecting deposits. So let me give you a little bit of context of what has been happening and let me go back a, a couple of years ago and what happened during COVID, right? Because I think it's all linked to what's happening right now and all the, the rapid changes that we have seen in the monetary policy as well. So during COVID, we saw a lot of excess liquidity in the banking industry. Uh, of course, there was a, the, the, the monetary policy was easing across all of the industry, across all of the countries in, in America Latina. It was easing as well in the U.S., lowering rates to zero levels, of course. And um, this actually pushed a lot of liquidity in the market and banks were trapped with liquidity and the assets were not growing at the same time. So we saw a spike during the beginning of COVID actually with assets because clients were getting ready and creating buffers in their balance sheet mm -hmm. because there was a lot of uncertainty of what was going to happen actually during COVID. So that's where we saw some uh, peak or some increased actually in the asset side. Um, and of course, this was all this um, monetary policy pushing liquidity into the market, pushing liquidity so that um, they can incentivize actually the economy. Uh, but um, loans didn't grow, so banks were basically trapped with liquidity, with excess liquidity, and that excess liquidity was not valuable from a balance sheet perspective. So it was pretty tough actually to allocate this uh, liquidity in different counterparties. Uh, it was really challenging for banks actually to gain any yields on that liquidity that was just sitting on the balance sheet of the banks. Um, because all the central banks were basically paying uh, very low rates for that liquidity that was sitting there, and the asset side was not growing. And then um, suddenly, of course, we have seen what has been happening. Inflation has peaked across all of the countries globally. Inflation has peaked in the U.S. specifically, and that has pushed actually the Federal Reserve to increase, to increase rates pretty rapidly. Uh, so what we have seen is that in the past eight months, the, actually the, the, the um, Federal Reserve has increased the rates already by six times. Um, so that's, um, that's pushing rates pretty rapidly high and um, trying to control inflation, which is the main mandate also of the, of the Federal Reserve, as well as keeping the labor market in a healthy manner. But increasing rates in, in the U.S. are, of course, impacting the rest of the countries that are actually keeping up and, and trying to increase rates to control uh, actually what's happening in terms of inflation. So what we have seen is banks and clients asking for higher rates. Uh, we have seen more sensitivity as a whole in the market. Clients are demanding higher yields. And something that is really um, 
uh, special that, that, that I have seen recently is that not only financial institutions, but corporates and public sector names across the industry are uh, easing their, their investment policy. They're looking for other alternative investments, not only uh, overnight liquidity, not only time deposits, we're seeing actually um, more flexibility in terms of the investment policy and clients are looking for uh, T-bills, they're looking for securities, they're looking for commercial papers. So I think there is a good opportunity right now in the market to increase yields and that's what we have seen happening um, in the most recent months with all the rate hacks that we have been uh, facing and that have been happening across all of the countries in Latin. Another interesting topic is financial inclusion, which is unfortunately an evergreen issue for the region. Increasing financial inclusion is one of the objectives for the IFC. Let's hear about Martin's perspective. So I think in the, in the region, one of the things politically we're seeing is, is definitely a move to the left politically, which I think is due to the voting power and the interest of many people who feel left out of the formal economy. And, and, and so what I, I see from many of the new governments is trying to find ways to increase the participation uh, of citizens in the formal economy. In countries across Latin America, I think the, the range of the informal part of the economy in terms of workers is from 40 to 70 percent. Yeah. And uh, when you're outside of the formal part of the economy, you you are not visible to many goods and services. Um, and <clears throat> so one thing that, that, that we try to do is work with microfinance institutions, work with banks to, to help them identify opportunities um, and uh, to, to provide funding and sometimes incentives, concessional or blended finance to, to support that, that effort. With Bank Colombia in, in Colombia, we, we have a program to, to help that bank identify and fund Venezuelan uh, immigrants. And, and uh, recently with a, a project with De Vivienda in, in Colombia, they're helping them identify and find ways to work with LGBTQ community, which can often be invisible. And what are the needs and approaches? We're, we build on our experience with uh, uh, helping improve lending to women, women SMEs. Many of our our projects with with banks is to support them. In this area, one with Global Bank in, in Panama is directed towards uh, lending to women for mortgages, the mm. um, $70 million project there. So these are all different ways that we're trying to help the financial sector bring people more into the formal economy. Of course, you mentioned microfinance, right? And there is a lot of debate about uh, the fact that sometimes microfinance institutions um, have come under attack because, of course, they uh, sometimes their their interest rates are very high. Um, so I don't know what is your view on that. How can uh, we make sure that you know microfinance uh, really fulfill its purpose? When we work with microfinance institutions, we're very cognizant of, of mm -hmm. this concern and, and try and work within existing regulations with, within the government, ensure our, our client uh, institutions 
have both fair and, and just uh, approaches to, to pricing. Um, many times the alternative that uh, uh, exists in markets are even higher priced uh, mm. loans. So microfinance institutions are one way to, to help improve access to financing um, as, as entities, as, as individuals, sorry, mm. become more credit worthy. Uh, financial inclusion is a top priority for MasterCard. Um, when you look globally, we have a goal to bring 1 billion people included in the financial ecosystem. And in Latin America, is no different. We have actually um, made a commitment with the White House, where we're sitting now in, in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, with the partnership of Central America, uh, to help financial inclusion in these three markets. The White House uh, set this group, the Partnership of Central America, with the purpose of controlling migration and ensure that these markets have are sustainable so that um, they can uh, basically live by themselves, for themselves, uh, without the need of migration. And financial inclusion plays a key role. Um, so MasterCard, as one of the 12 founding members, um, we committed $100 million. Um, and as part of that, we committed to bring in the next five years 5 million people included in the financial system in these three markets, which proportionately to the population is very large, and one million uh, SMEs, micro SMEs, uh, to be digitally included. So absolutely a top priority for MasterCard, a top priority here in Latin America. And specifically, I don't know if you go into the detail on how these uh, funds will be deployed. Yes, so um, there is multiple ways of how we're using the funds, uh, definitely public-private partnerships is one of them. Um, the one area that I am responsible for, which is not all, but it's a component of how we're achieving financial inclusion, is through remittances. Uh, and you may think, how is remittances correlated to financial inclusion? But in these markets, is absolutely correlated. And this is because over 20% of the GDP of these markets, it's actually remittances. So pretty much everyone here receives remittances. And yet, 60% plus of the population is not bankerized. So if you think of, if there is a way to digitize these remittances and having those people that don't have bank accounts but are receiving cash remittances to join the financial ecosystem or in the financial system, all of a sudden you've achieved financial inclusion. So that's what we're trying to do in our uh, regard and responsibility. That's how these funds would be used in this specific area for my um, work area and remittances. And uh, also you focus a lot on cross-border uh, payments. Um, I don't know if what are you think are the main uh, trends uh, and topics um, that banks and, you know, I was talking about. Uh... Yes, absolutely. So let, let me maybe separate the conversation of trends in two areas. The first one is cross-border inbound payments into Latin America. Um, what it's typically called remittances. So in here, in terms of trends and innovations, um, we're trying to disrupt the market because it's basically cash-based. And the, the, the problem is that people here and in the U.S., where the, which is the main originator of these remittances, are just very used to using the brick-and-mortar channels. They know how to go to the mom-and-pop shop in the corner. Um, they know how to send, basically, give the cash to the West to the to the different um, uh, brick and mortar locations, and send the money and pay a very 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 big fees for that. Um, the recipient is the same story, so they know they have to go and 
drive or walk or bike to a location and stand in lines so that they can receive their monies. Um, but the reality is that it's very expensive. They like sometimes the transaction could cost eight dollars and six percent, even more. Um, it takes time because yes, the transaction itself could be instant, but they have to commute to get their money. And imagine the level of insecurity because all of a sudden these people are receiving older salary and it's getting in cash and they're far away from home. Um, so the challenge is, is that now that the trend is that we're at the right time. Why? Because digitization is happening as we speak. These markets, you would think they're not digitized, but 90, over 90% of the population, 98, I think last study I got from Kaiser Consulting, 98% of the people here have cell phones, but even more shocking, 80% have internet connection. So the big challenge is how do you make solutions available to them, alternatives available to them? And at the same time, how do you change their behavior, which is the bit more difficult part. And it's not only the recipient, it's not only the folks that are living here in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and the rest of Latin America, is how do you change the behavior of the immigrant in the US? And these challenges are big, these trends are happening as we speak. And, and uh, what do you think is the, you know, the, the solution to that? So the key is partnering with banks, non-bank financial institutions, fintechs on end-to-end -end solutions. Let me give you an example of what have we done um, in one particular case. And again, the idea is that many, of, many more of these would come to fruition shortly. So we partner with a fintech called Paysend, um, who is one of the leading fintechs for cross-border payments in Europe, um, they're also very large globally, who is expanded now to North America and Latin America. And what we're doing is someone in the US now has the ability to download an app called Payson, which is similar to the other fintechs, but it'll, you will see the, the little difference. And you can send money to a phone number. So you select your cousin's number in Guatemala, and the person in Guatemala is going to receive a notification on the phone to download an app. Um, and when they download it here in Guatemala, all of a sudden the money that the sender, US sender sent, it's going to be received on a digital issued MasterCard. So they will have the money available instantly for them. And the next piece of the equation is, okay, so they don't have a card. It's all in their phone. How are they going to access this? And ideally you would have acceptance location where you can use your phone. But the reality is that we're not there yet, even though we're spending a lot of energy and funds of the, of the, five, of the 100 million yeah. to build acceptance we're not gonna get there in the short run. So what we're doing is we're partnering with one of the largest ATM players mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the cluster called 5B, and they will give access to their ATMs so that you can go with their phone and you withdraw the money, the cash, you withdraw it with the phone. So imagine this, all of a sudden people- That, that would be uh, for across all Latin America? We're starting in Guatemala, and we're expanding to Honduras and El Salvador, but the opportunity is limitless. And again, it, should, it does not need to be with Payson at all. And I'm encouraging banks, fintechs, to explore this model, because that's a great way of attaining financial inclusion. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and please check our website at thebanker.com to listen to the other episode of the Talk of Alabama.